Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites Podcast with Yehuda Geber. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist war the Brüder in America. So kalt and sharp at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. And this episode is about the impact and legacy of Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, the uh, great rabbi of Frankfurt of German neo-Orthodoxy in the 19th century. And I think this is a topic that's long overdue. And really, because both because of its historical importance and relevance and because of my love for this particular topic. I don't know how we just never got around to it in Jewish History Soundbites, but the main thing is is that we're doing it now, but we're doing it out of order. Um, I'm going to focus today on, like I said, his legacy and impact. In other words, really from the end of the story, from how his historical impact is felt kind of like in today's contemporary society, but really from the 1800s and on. Um, I think that really there should be an entire series on Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch and his world and his outlook. At least three additional parts, besides for this one, in other words, four altogether. There should be one as kind of like a biographical episode, one about him himself, and another one about his philosophy of Taira Imdarecheretz. Again, not a philosophy episode, more of a historical one, how it played out in practice. And another one, about his Austrit, his about his uh, creating separatist uh, Jewish community, Orthodox communities, and how he got the that law passed in 1876 in Berlin, um, uh, allowing making it legal for Orthodox communities to separate from Reform-controlled uh, uh, Jewish communities in Germany, and how that had a historical impact as well. So that would be three more. Like I said, those three, his bi- biography, Tyrem Derecheres, and Austrit, will save for future episodes. I can't guarantee when, but one day we'll get to it. Right now, I want to actually start from a totally different angle, which is his legacy and impact 
in other words, what, how, how his, how his, his life and his leadership and his initiatives and his writings and his uh, um, institutions and ideas are very relevant and have left a decisive impact on the development of Orthodox Jewry in the modern era since his time. So why am I going to now? I actually recently had a trip to Germany, um, and we stopped in Frankfurt, of course, by Rabbi Shamshner Hirsch's cavern, and also his son-in-law, Rabbi Breuer, the, the Yanuk of, 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 of Stalin, the Karolina Rebbe, is also buried there. And we went also to the old cemetery where the Pnei Shuin, or Nassen Adler, and the Hafla, and many others are buried. And, uh, you know, German Jewish history is fascinating. And we went down to Worms and Mainz and Michelstadt and all that, the R- lower Rhine River Valley. And the group really um, took to the story of of uh, Reb Shamshin Hirsch when we were by his cover and and uh, and wanted to know more, was thirsty for more. And as it happens, I have another trip in this coming up in February, um, which also is going to be going to Frankfurt in that area, and we're going to be going through Germany. So it's becoming more and more popular. So I felt that we have to be able to have a, a situation where I can um, refer uh, participants on the trip to who want to know more. So I say, hey, there's a podcast on Jewish History Soundbites. If you want to hear more about this topic, then you should uh, listen to uh, to this episode. Of course, I'm also hoping that there's more groups that go. So this is becoming very relevant for all these trips. And, um, and there was also recently his yard site uh, just now a few days ago. Um, so it's uh, it's very meaningful, and I want to say a, a personal connection as well. Um, in, he was always Reb Shamshir Hirsch was always one of my role models, heroes, however you're supposed to say it. Um, it was very his story and his history, and even his uh, writings um, resonated with me. And in fact, when I was still a young younger man uh, in Kyle in the Mir. When, uh, many years ago, and I uh, learned the 19 letters of Rav Shamshner Hirsch, uh, one of his foundational works. So we actually had a chabura in the back of the Nergavriel based Medrash in the mirror, where I delivered. I I gave a, it was you know uh, one of the guys asked asked to asked to do it, so I complied and uh, and I gave a 19 letters chabura. We went through the whole sefer together. And I have notes on it. And those shiurim or chaburas, whatever you want to call them, were recorded. And then someone posted them online somewhere. I don't even know where to find them today, but they're somewhere online. Um, and those are the first recorded uh, lectures of Yehudi Geber ever to exist. In other words, way before I did history, the first things I ever had um, were on the 19 letters of Rav Shamshin Fall Hirsch. So you know, I guess my claim to fame is also uh, comes uh, comes through that. Um my wife's family, of course, is from Frankfurt as well. So there's there's that, and they were part of the kahila of Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch from the original uh, members. So the um, it's that that has that has that uh, connection too. Now, when I went to his cover for the first time with a group many many years ago, it was about I don't know ten years ago or so. Um, I guess that's not many many years ago. So I when I approached the cover and I was speaking to the group, I said I said this is the person who really taught us all, taught the Jewish people, 
How to Live as a Religious Torah Jew, an Orthodox Jew, in the Modern Era. In other words, we owe him all of our orthodoxy in the modern era, because without him, we didn't have that, that framework, that system that could work, that orthodoxy can work in the modern era. And I wanted to substantiate that bold and audacious claim to a certain extent. So, so I want to contrast it with, um, with, what, with what is a prevalent uh, uh, wrong assumption, is that you know one, one time I had the privilege of being in Washington Heights for Shabbos, and I went to the the big KJ Shul on Bennett Avenue, and you know it wasn't wasn't that full on the Friday night, and and uh, you know the choir was there and they sang, and like I, I thought to myself, oh boy, look at this! This is this is a community that doesn't seem to be growing and flourishing. Uh, what happened to the great, glorious Yaki community of Rav Breuer and of Kaladas Yishurin? Why is it why is it not growing and flourishing in Washington Heights? And I realized how mistaken I am because it's not about a specific particular shul in a specific particular um, neighborhood in Manhattan, which may may you know may uh, the demographics of neighborhoods change, and it's that it, that it doesn't reflect on the historical role played by someone. And really, Rev Hirsch's role has an outsized impact, like my claim was, and I'm going to try to explain that uh, now. Now, there's loads of sources out there on Rav Shamshin Rafael Hirsch, tons of written material, both scholarly and academic, and popular books, and uh, you know, all kinds of literature out there. There's tons of stuff written about him, his world, his community, his ideology, his impact. Um, as it happens, there's an excellent, excellent art scroll book about him. And and this is, may sound surprising, but it, it is. It is a fantastic book. Rabbi Leo Mayer Klugman uh, wrote a, who I know personally, um, um, he's a, wrote an excellent book. And it's an art scroll book, a biography of Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. It's thick, it's well written. And the most surprising part about it, it has this funny thing and the two funny things in the back of the book, which you would not expect from an art scroll book, it has end notes and a bibliography. So uh, that just goes to show that just because you're writing um, a, 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 a religious publication, you're still allowed to do top-notch research and sourcing and and uh, use a good bibliography and end notes and source everything and and you're allowed to do very good research no matter who you're writing with and publishing with. That's 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 beside the point. So I use um, Rabbi Klugman's book extensively um, for my Rebbe material, and it is highly recommended. Um, so I I want to give before I jump into his imp uh, legacy and impact, we have to do at least a brief overview of his life, very very brief, because I want to get to. Uh, to, uh, to after that, um, but just to get a little bit of the context, he's, of course, uh, born in 1808 and passes away in 1888, so his life spans almost the entire 19th century, a century of upheaval and change in Germany, secularization, modernity, the unification of Germany, emancipation of German Jewry, the beginnings of secularization and assimilation, the beginnings of reform, um, all the challenges from both external, the Industrial Revolution, 
uh, urbanization, uh, immigration, all that is happening in Germany, emancipation, like I said, political changes, Bismarck is bringing about the unification of Germany and the rise of the German Empire, and then of course you also have all the internal Jewish changes that I mentioned, the collapse of traditional Judaism in these ancient Ashkenaz German Jewish communities, you have um, uh, uh, you have uh, um, secularization, assimilation, which already starts in the 18th century, and then there's the rise of reform also in the 19th, the science of Judaism, um, and all that entails as well, which is its center is in Germany, and its literature is published during the 19th century in Reverse's lifetime. Um, and um, uh, um, Jewish studies, what today's Jewish studies, and in, in, in those days it was, you know, a lot of Heinrich Graz's History of the Jews, and Zechariah Frankel's uh, Darke HaMishnah, the history of the oral law, and the Breslau Seminary, um, and uh, and all these challenges to traditional Judaism. And Rav Hirsch comes up with this this defense of orthodoxy. He essentially establishes a new movement of neo-orthodoxy of of, uh, of 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 living as a traditional religious Jew in the modern world, while incorporating elements of what emancipation has to offer, and um, and what and what uh, and what emancipation and equal rights brought, integrating into the surrounding society while still not compromising one iota of his uh, religious beliefs. He grows up in Hamburg, uh, in and he um, studies under his two great teachers are Chacham Isaac Bernay, and then later on Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, the Aruch Laner. Um, he, so he studies in yeshiva, he also studies in university in Bonn, but Rav Hirsch himself would always emphasize throughout his life that he never finished his uh, university degree. So he was Herr Rabiner, but he was never Herr Doctor, so he always would emphasize. Um, he had uh, started off in the rabbinate quite early, and he had three early rabbinical positions uh, before he was in Frankfurt, one in Oldenburg, and then later in Emden, and then later in Nicholsburg. In Oldenburg, he published the 19 letters. So he did that very early on in his career. And then shortly afterwards, he published the Chorev, which was his another foundational work of his. Um, he wrote and published throughout his life. Later on, his monumental work, his five-volume commentary on the entire Torah. He wrote on Tehillim. He wrote his collected writings are seven volumes. He wrote hundreds of articles and, and pamphlets and polemics with everyone. He was a prolific writer, never stopped writing throughout his life. Um, when he was in Emden, there's another uh, interesting story when he was the rabbi there, that uh, he almost got appointed the chief rabbi of the British Empire. This is the Victorian era. Um, so, and Rabbi Nathan Adler became the rabbi instead, but uh, Rabbi Hirsch uh, was one of the uh, finalist uh, candidates. He almost got the position. Interesting how quirk in history, if that would have turned out, how would that have changed European Jewish history? How would that have changed German Jewry? And most uh, curious to speculate would be how that would have impacted uh, British Jewry and maybe the English-speaking world in general. And later on, he's the rabbi in Nicholsburg, which becomes the chief rabbi of Moravia, a large and prestigious position. Um, and he then takes up the position in 1851. Um, he's invited by a small group of Orthodox Jews after the basically the collapse of traditional Judaism in the ancient and glorious uh, Jewish community of Frankfurt, 
which had fallen upon hard times during the first half of the 19th century due to secularization and assimilation. And they, a, a small group of Orthodox Jews, the traditional Jews, they uh, invite Rav Hirsch to rebuild the community, to come there and, and reactivate it and reignite it. And he leaves this prestigious job in Nickelsburg and he goes to Frankfurt where he remains for the rest of his life from 1851 to 1888. Uh, so 37 years, the last 37 years, 36, 37 years of his uh, life he spends there. And then he, um, his activities there, he becomes a world leader. He publishes many more of his works. He establishes his institutions in Frankfurt, educational institutions and and uh, pioneering uh, educational institutions, which we'll get to hopefully soon. And he becomes uh, one of the most respected rabbis in all of Germany, and then later on in all of the world. Um, his, his reputation spreads far and wide. He's quite activist in his positions and defending orthodoxy and in protecting it, his initiatives in that regard, and also in his polemics. He, he, he debates many of the reform leaders and many of the science of Judaism leaders and many of the uh, um, uh, ones who wanted to um, compromise uh, traditional Judaism in the century of change, the 19th century. So he, he is extremely busy and extremely active and extremely vocal for the rest of his life. And in the course of the events, he and several other German rabbis of his era, the Würzburger Rav, Rav Bamberger, Rav Isaac, Rav Seligman Bar Bamberger, and Rav Israel Heldesheimer, and others, they, Rav Barkus Liebman in Mainz, and others, these brave Orthodox rabbis in Germany who were able to stem the tide and preserve the the small German Orthodox community and left a great impact on history. So that is the basic story of Rav Hirsch's life. Of course, we'll have to devote a future episode to really going through his biography, but I want to get to the misconception regarding his impact. Was it a limited impact? It was limited for his time. It worked in Germany for a limited number of individuals and families and communities, and it had a limited impact in the post-war in Israel and the United States and other places, then and 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 a few yuckies who remained religious. That's that's who was impacted by Rav Hirsch, or which is very often the way it's understood, or is it much much broader than we can possibly imagine? And that's what I would like to argue that his impact is much broader and much of it is subtle and not even noticed as something specifically. Um, um, attributed to Rav Shamshin or Fall Hirsch. So, for example, I'll get, proceed to, to, to cite several examples, and this is not going to be all-encompassing. But uh, first of all, the very idea that Orthodox Judaism can flourish in the modern era, I think, is attributed to him. Because you, the, the idea that... Ortho, what do I mean by that, in the modern era? I mean by being somewhat integrated in the modern era, which... I would say basically everyone is today. Everyone engages with the modern world, whether we like it or not. It's so uh, encroaching in society that the language, the mentality, the culture, the political systems, the the uh, you know the, the way that Jews can live in democracies in in with equal rights, which which is what he saw as emancipation. But you know today we don't look at it as emancipation, but 
with equal rights as citizens in a country and 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 still not compromise at all on orthodox judaism ideals is is he he provided that system he gave that framework it was his teachings that allowed it to happen and he pioneered its practical implementation in other words no one thought it would be possible before Reb Shamshin Rafael Hirsch. And I'll give a more specific example of what I mean. Let's say the use of the vernacular. Um, the idea that religious Jews can speak English and still feel that they're, they are religious Jews, they're not compromising on their orthodoxy, on their religious commitment, is the Chiddush of Reb Shamshin Rafael Hirsch. In other words, at that time, to use the Goyesha language of German, of Russian, or whatever it was, was you were like one step out the door. You, you, you were looked at by your family, by your teachers, by your community, as someone who was on their way out of Yiddishkeit. They were leaving traditional Judaism. They're using the language of the non-Jews. They engage with non-Jewish literature and media. These are all, all you know, involvement with the outside world. And therefore, that's basically, you're gone. You're a goner. You're, you're finished with Orthodox Judaism. Whereas Rav Thompson Rafal Hirsch said something so basic that no, you can adopt the language of the country, of the of the of the surrounding, of the non-Jewish language, and still be an Orthodox Jew. And he took it a step further. Even a rabbi in an Orthodox shul can use the language of the country. And I would imagine that there's many shuls in the world that the rabbi of the shul, when he speaks to the congregation, to the shul, he 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 uses the English language or I mean, in, in, in Israel, it's a different story because Hebrew is, you know, is, is a Jewish language uh, for, for, for more or less. I'm not going to get into that debate, but it is a Jewish language objectively without getting into all the ideology behind it. Um, but in the rest of the world, for instance, um, if you use English or any other language, that an Orthodox rabbi can claim to be an Orthodox rabbi and teach Torah in the English language, and not be considered a heretic, and not be considered a reformer, is because of Rav Shamshin or Fall Hirsch. Um, so that's something I think we take for granted. Um, the clash between modernity and tradition, the fact that he said that we can live a modern life in the modern world, incorporating modern ideals from the surroundings, engaging with surrounding society because of emancipation, because Jews are now able to integrate, and yet... The very idea that we still don't have to compromise tradition, which is how every single religious Jew lives their life today, no matter how closed off they are, if they're, even if they're in uh, New Square or Monroe, they are engaged somewhat with American life, and the same thing in Israel and anywhere else. So that is, you know, again, related to his ideas of Tarim Derech Haaretz. Um, Derech Haaretz doesn't only mean behaving nicely, and Derech Haaretz doesn't only mean working for a living. Everyone worked for a living in Rav Hirsch's day. It wasn't about kailal or, or working. That's, that, that's, that's anachronistic. Um, um, and he also is not about university education. That wasn't the idea. The idea is integrating uh, modern life and together with a Torah life, and being able to create that perfect synthesis without compromising on tradition or religiosity, um, I, I, when, I, when I'm with the groups Bayerab Shimshin or Fall Hirsch's cover, I try to be provocative, just to keep their attention, of course. So I'll do the same thing on my podcast. This is to be provocative, just to keep your attention. But I made the bold claim that in the greatest uh, 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 exemplification uh, of... Tyrim Derech of living Tyrim Derech today in the world is Lakewood. 
not the yeshiva, the, the city, um, where people are living a Torah and Derech Eretz life. They may not attribute it to Rav Shem Shnafal Hirsch. They may not have, have even even heard of Rav Shem Shnafal Hirsch or Torah and Derech Eretz. But the lifestyle is living a Torah and Derech Eretz. Um, again, I don't know if they're actually compromising on the Torah or Derech Eretz. I'm not aware. But uh, but uh, the, the, the idea that you can integrate uh, modern uh, life, uh, engaging with the surroundings while not compromising on the Torah life, is uh, comes from him. The same thing with general studies in the yeshiva curriculum, at least at the elementary school level and the high school level. I'm not going to talk about post-high school because that's a very controversial subject, and Hirsch himself didn't really address it so much, except for uh, saying, uh, talking about university education in general. Um, uh, but l- let's talk about elementary school education, which everywhere in the world, uh, including in Israel, by the way, uh, the they basic uh, Torah uh, education in, at grade school level, at least. High school is already a different story, but in many places it's in the high school level as well. Um, the idea that you can incorporate um, general studies into a Torah curriculum at a elementary school level, at a, a grade school level, cheder, um, whatever it's called, whatever phrase you want to use, is first promulgated by Rav Shem Shavol Hirsch, that it's not compromising on your Judaism, it's not compromising on your religious life to do so. And the fact that basically the entire world does that today is due to his influence and impact. Um, um, the fact that he was the first one to pioneer the idea of an organized orthodoxy, of understanding politics and organizing orthodoxy along political alignments, and he, his ideas, which he lays down to his students and followers in Frankfurt, lays the seeds for Agudas Yisrael of an international organized orthodoxy to confront the challenges of the modern era. So Agudas Yisrael, which is founded by students of Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch in Frankfurt, and later on um, is, is, is spread to Eastern Europe, where the Ger Rebbe and Rav Chaim Meiser and all join Agudas Yisrael, but it, it's, it's, it, it, the seeds are planted. So Agudas Yisrael's existence can all be brought back to Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, and the idea that orthodoxy should and must be organized in order to jointly confront the, uh, the, uh, the challenges of modernity. That all comes from him. The idea of orthodox media, newspapers, and today, of course, it spreads to digital media, but in those days, in the 19th century, the big thing was newspapers. He pioneers that in 1852, just a year after he arrives in Frankfurt, he establishes the first ever orthodox journal, Yeshurun. I know many people mispronounce it Jeshurun, but in European languages, a J is pronounced as Y. Um, so later on, a few years later, um, Rabbi Marcus Lehman in nearby Mainz, he establishes Der Israelit, and eventually the two merge. So Der Israelit and Yeshurun merge as one newspaper. These are orthodox pioneering newspapers. It was way before Halavanon or Hapeles or any of the other later orthodox, the Sida Shatogblad, all those come much, much, much later. And Rabbi Shavashafal Hirsch is the first one to recognize the modern idea of of media, of print media as a medium to express his vision, to express his ideology, to express his polemics and his opposition to to different uh, events and, and, and publications that he felt were a threat to orthodoxy, a threat to traditional Judaism, and he understood the power of media. So all of orthodox media today all comes from Rav Shamshin or Fall Hirsch as well. Orthodox literature, 
Again, this is also more Rabbi Doctor Rabbi. I think it's Rabbi Doctor Marcus Lehman, um, who wrote in the novels, but Rabbi Hirsch uh, appreciated the importance of Orthodox literature and helped disseminate it and spread it and promote it. All of this was, of course, all of his writings, all of this media, everything was in the vernacular. Everything was in German. He's not writing it in Hebrew or Yiddish. He understands the importance of using the language of the people. And then another pioneering venture of his is girls' education. I discussed this, I think, at some length in my long ago, several years ago, episode, uh, series, not just an episode, on uh, girls' education. I think I called it uh, Sisters of the Rev- uh, not sister, uh, da- uh, daughters of the revolution, sisters of the revolution. I don't remember. It was a five-part series on on um, on uh, girls' education, and I emphasized Reb Shamshafal Hirsch's role. He in Frankfurt establishes the first ever Orthodox girls' school, um, and and uh, and all all of uh, the idea of Torah education for girls in the modern era. Uh, comes from him. But by girls' education, it actually is much, much more than that. That may be the greatest impact that's not noticed today, that he's responsible for all of girls' Torah education, not just in an abstract way because he established the first girls' school in Frankfurt. It's actually much more direct, this impact, and that's in two ways. Number one, um, Sarah Schneer uh, herself, when she uh, established Beis Yaakov, who she was inspired by um, her her uh, interactions with when she was a refugee in Vienna during World War One. She came from Krakow. Um, she was from Hasidic Galicia, from a Bell's family, and she was in Vienna. And she heard Ramesha David Flesh, who was uh, speaking about Yehudis, who was Shabbos Hanukkah, and the role of women in 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 in, uh, in in preserving Torah tradition in the modern era. And he and she approached him and started going, attending his shiurim, and uh, and and Ramesha David Flesh indirectly uh, uh, had an impact on, or directly rather, had an impact. I wrote about this together with my esteemed colleague, uh, Davi Safir, in a recent Mishpacha magazine um, uh, extended for the record feature, if you want to look it up, what we wrote about, about Rav Meish David Flesh and his impact on the Beis Yaakov movement and on Sarah Schneer. So Rav Meish David Flesh was a student of, of not only of the Ksav Seifer in Hungary, in Preshburg, um, but he was also of of Rabbi Dr. Solomon Breuer of Hirsch's son-in-law in Frankfurt, and he uh, incorporated the ideas and ideals of Rav Hirsch and Tarim Derech in his talks and in his approach to to uh, to Yiddishkeit, which is how Sarah Schneer gets connected to that. But not only that, Sarah Schneer um, it, it is recommended by Rabbi Flesh to engage with Rav Hirsch's books, the Nineteen Letters and Chorev. And she makes 19 Letters and Chorev the core curriculum of the Beis Yaakov movement in Poland in between the wars. So the rapid spread of Beis Yaakov throughout Poland, all these Hasidic girls attending Beis Yaakov, the main books they're studying and the main ideas that they're studying and the primary uh, ideological basis of the entire curriculum of Beis Yaakov in the tens of thousands of students who attended throughout Poland and other countries, in Romania, Czechoslovakia, and Austria, and in Lithuania, um, all of throughout the, the interwar period is all from Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. And they formed the basis of Beis Yaakov, and the 19, specifically the 19 letters in Chorev. 
And it's more than that. Uh, Rosh Hashanah herself visits Frankfurt and meets with members of Rosh Hashanah Fall Hirsch's family. And she tells them that she sees Rosh Hashanah Fall Hirsch as her teacher and he's the main influence in her life. And he and she wanted to, to learn more about him from his family members. Incredible description of Sarah Schneer's visit to Frankfurt and how she was overflowing with her, her description of how much Rav Hirsch had an impact on her personally and on the entire trajectory and development of Beis Yaakov. So that's a fascinating thing. So girls' education today, in many, many ways, is uh, a direct impact of Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. Um, there's another aspect which is kind of related to this, which I want to go delve into in some length, and I'll end off with this. Um, and that's a historic meeting between Reb Yisrael Salanter and Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. Um, that Reb Shosalanter saw in Reb Hirsch's lifetime, this is 1876, um, so this is seven years before Reb Shosalanter's passing, and it's 12 years before Reb Shosalanter Hirsch's passing. They met in Berlin in 1876 when Reb Shosalanter Hirsch was coming to um, Berlin and meeting with government officials to try to get the law passed that would allow Austrit, would allow the... Um, the separatist communities, orthodox communities, to officially separate and be recognized by the government in their status. And the meeting was orchestrated by another famous individual, Reb Naftali Hertz Ehrman, who I mentioned in the Michelstadt episode a, couple of months, a few months ago. Um, he was a famous rabbi, an author, an activist, leader. Um, so Reb Naftali Hertz Ehrman was in Berlin at the time, and Rav Hirsch was busy running around and writing memorandums and meeting with government officials and, and education ministry officials and, and trying to get this law passed. Rabbi Sol Salanter was in Berlin for medical treatment. And Rabbi Sol Salanter asked Rav Felhirtz Ehrman to set up a meeting between him and Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch. And the reason was, was because Rabbi Sol Salanter, already then the visionary, the great leader from Eastern Europe, he saw that Rav Hirsch's leadership in German Jewry and his ideas and his farm would be very, very useful to have an impact on Eastern European Jewry. So I think that this kind of relates to what we're saying here, is that Rabbi Strauss-Lander was ahead of his time, as he was with pretty much everything, and he uh, and he saw that Rav Hirsch would be able to have an impact, and therefore he wanted to meet personally with Rav Hirsch and ask him advice about how Russian Jewry, in other words, Eastern European Jewry, could be saved. So I think this story illustrates the impact of Rav Hirsch already from then. And what I want to do is actually read from the original. And I don't do this very often, but read several pages as if it's like story time with Jewish history soundbites. Um, um, so um, um, I hope, hope, hope uh, this is enjoyable, not, not, not burdensome. If it is burdensome, you could just turn this off. Um, but I just want to read several pages from, uh, from this little pamphlet I have. This was the... Rabbi Hertz Ehrman, um, who arranged the meeting and was eyewitness to it and listened to it and was there, um, he he wrote it up. He It was 30 years later, so maybe he didn't remember every single detail and every single word that was spoken. But uh, 30 years later, he wrote it up in Der Israelit, in that Orthodox periodical that I mentioned earlier. In 1906, on the 30th anniversary of the meeting, he long after both of them had passed away, um, he wrote he wrote about it in German, obviously. And um, and he described in great detail these this this meeting and how it took place between these two giants. And it was later on published by Yeshua Lyman in a magazine called Light Light Magazine. It was translated by a woman named Gita Starrett 
from Der Israelit to Light Magazine. And then I didn't see it in Light Magazine. It was again republished in a small pamphlet in about 30 years ago in the 90s um, by the Neve Seminary. Um, and, uh, and I have this pamphlet. Um, I think it's out of print. I, I've never seen it anywhere else. Um, so I'm going to read from this pamphlet um, in the, the English translation, like I mentioned. And, um, and I'm, uh, so I'm going to read uh, as, lo- as, long as, as long as it takes, uh, several pages for describing this meeting. And this is all a translation from Rav Tully Hertz Ehrman's description. Within Russian Jewry, Rabbi Stroh Lipkin of Salant, even during his lifetime, was considered an authority. Today, 23 years after his death, he is valued even more highly. Tzaddikim are greater in death than in life. Rabbi Stroh had never in his life occupied any public office. He was neither a businessman nor an artisan. In short, he belonged to none of the categories which in Russia were eligible to obtain a passport legally. On his previous journeys, he had used the passport of a merchant friend of the first guild, a procedure which, due to the intolerable, intolerable Russian passport conditions, is also observed today despite its illegality. His pure character, however, could not keep up his unlawfulness for long. When he came back to Berlin at the beginning of the 1870s to seek a cure for his ailing health, this aging man of 63 or so declared that he would not travel back from Berlin until he had learned a skill that would enable him on his return to Russia to obtain a legal passport. As the easiest and what seemed to him the most promising occupation was ink-making, he studied under a chemist. A kind friend gave him a whole floor of his house to use as a laboratory. So for weeks he spent a good part of the day and night intensively occupied with the theoretical and applied study of chemistry. This was not as easy as it may sound. He and his chemistry teacher could at first only communicate with each other through an interpreter, but Rabbi Stroh learned to read and write German, and soon progressed so far that he could read the daily paper. Later on, with some help for the more difficult words and the chemical terms, he was able to study chemistry books. After a few weeks, Rabbi Stroh understood the composition of all types of ink, including gold and silver ink. He had accomplished his fixed goal so rapidly and so thoroughly that his chemistry teacher declared that his elderly chemistry student had nothing more to learn from him. Rabbi Shamshner Fall Hirsch had been traveling to Berlin from the beginning of the 1870s in order to prepare the way for the Austrit Gesetz, that's the Austrit law, which was finally passed in 1876. Three years older than Rabbi Stroll, he was always under great strain and beset with many different types of work, which made great demands on him at all hours of the day and night throughout his stays in Berlin. Rav Hirsch sought out ministers, ministerial advisors, and influential representatives in every area, and through personal presentation of the case, tried to win over the authoritative factions in favor of the law. In the evenings, his correspondence and, and writing awaited him, and this often kept him occupied until well into the night. Rav Yisrael had a great longing to become acquainted with Rabbi Hirsch and to hear his views on the measures for consolidating traditional Jewry in Russia. He had great respect for the regenerator of German Jewry, and no one else was more deeply convinced of the desperate need of Russian Jewry for such a personality. Questions of etiquette regarding which of the two was to visit the other first did not exist for Rabbi Yisrael. He asked me, as I was taking care of a few small duties for Rabbi Hirsch during his stay, to ask the rabbi, when would be the most convenient time for Rabbi Stroll to visit him? When I came to Rav Hirsch in the evening in his room at the Hotel Arnim, I found him very busy. Before I had a chance to state Rabbi Stroll's Zalanter's request, he asked me to acquire for him as soon as possible a few books from the Royal Library on the subject of the differences 
between Catholicism and Protestantism, for it had been suggested to him that he put down his concepts of the subject in a memorandum to be distributed in Parliament among the individual members of Parliament. Among other things, he had to present through proof that the contrast between observant Orthodoxy and Reformed Judaism was much greater than that between Catholics and Protestants. This he wanted to demonstrate through detailed quotation from the books he had so urgently requested. Since the library was already closed that evening, and I would only be able to get the necessary books the next morning, he asked me to come by early in the morning as perhaps he would still need, need still other books. When I saw how the time of this great man was so completely taken up, I hardly had the courage to mention Rabbi Stroll's wish, for I knew that its fulfillment would cost him more precious time. But when I actually did place my request before Rabbi Hirsch, he declared that any time would be available for a visit from Rabbi Stroll Solanter. He asked me which time would be most suitable for Rabbi Stroll, and when I indicated that Rabbi Stroll had left the choice to him, he suggested the next evening as then he would be most undisturbed. I knew what a sacrifice this was for Rav Hirsch just at this particular moment when time was so precious and he had to make the most of every single minute in order to complete the unfinished memorandum, for since the day was occupied with audiences and visits, he could only write it in the evenings. I therefore ventured to remark that the matter was not urgent and the visit could easily be postponed for a few days. Rabbi Hirsch, however, refused to hear of it and asked me to ask Rabbi Stroll to honor him with his visit the, next, the very next evening. When I came to Rabbi Hirsch the next morning in order to receive any more possible requests for the library, he told me with a smile that he would not be troubling me as he had finished writing the memorandum the previous night. He just wanted me to bring it to the printer so that it could be immediately composed, printed, corrected, and bound. It could then be handed out in Parliament two days later. Rabbi Hirsch had thus gained the necessary time to be able to devote the evening to his honored guest without infringing on the purpose for which he had come to Berlin. He had sacrificed a night of his own in order to gain an evening for Rabbi Stroll Salanter. More than 30 years have passed since that memorable evening, but the overwhelming impression of the meeting between these two great personalities has remained with me until this day. Their similarities and their differences, the overflowing wisdom of their thoughts, and the restrained modesty of their spoken words, the expression in Rabbi Hirsch's eyes from which his great noble soul seemed to pour forth, and the flashing sparks which shot out from the gaze of Rabbi Stroll and blazed around his learned brow. All that and so much more, all of it remains in my memory as vividly as if it had just happened yesterday. How different were the two great men in speech and bearing, and in various other external aspects which drew one's attention. And yet how similar were they in their thoughts and their spiritual life, in short, in everything which makes a man a Jew. Never have I sensed the binding and the brotherly strength of the Torah to purify and ennoble people more deeply than in the moment when the two men reached out their hands to each other. Rabbi Stroll, who even in general conversation never let a word leave his lips, which had not been carefully considered from all sides, and who knew in addition how precious Rabbi Hirsch's time was, particularly then, came straight to the matter which lay on his heart more than anyone else's. He explained the dangers that he believed threatened the future of Russian Jewry, and asked Rabbi Hirsch for his views on how to best combat them. Rabbi Hirsch, in his modesty, thought that he was not familiar enough with Jewish life in Russia to be able to express an authoritative opinion. Rabbi Stroll, however, he reasoned, must surely have thought about the problem a great deal himself, and he, and he therefore asked him to first state his opinion. Rabbi Stroll pointed that the best means of preserving the younger generation for Jewry, to win back their respect, 
was through literature in the Russian language permeated with the true Jewish spirit. The exceedingly salutary results which would ensue from writings of this nature were to him quite indisputable. The tragedy was, however, that those Russian Jews who were permeated with the truth of Judaism could not write Russian, while those who had acquired a secular education and mastered the Russian language had broken with traditional Judaism, so that the production of such writings seemed unimaginable. Rabbi Hirsch suggested that it might be then pro be proper to translate into Russian works written in the German language for this purpose. The translation, if necessary, could even be done by a non-Jew. This idea met with Rabbi Yisrael's full approval, and he asked Rabbi Hirsch to specify a few suitable works for this purpose. Rabbi Hirsch suggested the works of Solomon Plessner. Parenthetically, I'm cutting the reading for a second. Solomon Plessner was a famous darshan in Poznan, for many years, um, and he wrote several works which Rabbi Hirsch uh, looked up to, and he lived during that time. Getting back to reading the article, at this point I allowed myself to inquire whether the writings of Rabbi Hirsch himself would not be especially qualified, particularly such a work as the 19 letters. Rabbi Hirsch replied that it would naturally please him greatly if this, uh, great, if this great undertaking could be furthered through a translation of his writings. Neither of them was fundamentally opposed to a Hebrew translation. I later heard this from them both. But they believed that the great benefits they hoped would result from the propagation of the spirit of these writings could be effected more easily and more permanently if the remedy were given in the same form as the disease had been transmitted. On the way home, Rabbi Yisrael asked me to procure for him that very evening a copy of the 19 letters and to read through it with him so that he might be able to form an opinion for himself. This was, however, easier said than done. At that time, Rabbi Stroll had hardly begun to read German, and so we read until deep into the night, and for still another few days after that until we had finished the first letter. Another few weeks passed before we finally completed the book. Rabbi Stroll summed up his opinion of it. The book must not only be translated into Russian, but also into Lushan Hakaidish. So, that is the end of the article. I hope this wasn't too much of a burden. I thought it was fantastic, and it really shows how the impact of Reverse and its potential impact on much greater swaths of the demographics of Jewish society and saving uh, Orthodox Judaism in uh, confronting the challenges of modernity was perceived even in real time by Rabbi Stroll Salanter. Um, so I think this is just opening uh, the subject. I don't know if next episode will be furthering the story of Reb Shamshin of Halhirsch, but I do hope that future episodes will be devoted to this general story and perhaps exploring German Jewry in general during that time. And uh, we have lots more to discuss in this uh, very fascinating narrative. So if you like Jewish History Soundbites, make sure to tell your friends and family. You can find us on every single podcast platform. You can leave a rating and review. This is Yudi Gerber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGerber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. And I hope you enjoyed.